Well, good morning. Uh, for those who don't know, know me, I'm uh, Jeff Leader and I'm part of the ministry team here. I'm very proud of that fact and uh, very honoured to be uh, able to speak to you this morning. Before we start, I think we should pray. Our Lord, as we turn to your word, we thank you that you speak to us through your word, that it is a living, vital document that speaks to our hearts. And we pray that you would indeed speak to us through your Holy Spirit this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at uh, Philippians 3. It's on page 1180, if I recall right, in your Bibles there. I'll be putting most of the passage I'm referring to up on the screen as we go through, but if you'd like to have it open, that is often very helpful. Today, I want to look at the topic of ambition. Now, ambition can be defined as a strong desire to do or to achieve something, and typically it requires determination and hard work. Ambition is seen as the desire to, 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 to succeed, to climb to the top, to reach the pinnacle, to win at all costs. It requires hard work. And an ambitious person is seen to have very definite goals in life. They know what they want and they're highly motivated to do everything they can to achieve their goals. I kind of like this one. An ambitious person, or fish, is always looking for something bigger, better. Bigger house, more uh, um, prestige in a job, more power, more money, whatever. But ambition can often come with a cost. And I found this little summary. The cost of ambition can involve late nights, early mornings. Loss of associates, very few friends. You'll be misunderstood. You may be single unless you are lucky enough to find someone who understands your lifestyle. People will want you to do good, but never better than them. And for these reasons, you will do many things alone. So it leads us to ask the question, should a Christian believer be ambitious? Now some people can't see the the problem there. They may go to church on a Sunday and during the rest of the week they pursue their own ambitions, sometimes ruthlessly. On the other hand, other people may think that when you become a Christian believer... You have to give up all your ambitions and simply drift through life, taking whatever comes as God's will. They may even see ambition as a sin, something to be avoided. And so the question is, is either of these positions correct? Which brings us to the Apostle Paul in Philippians, Philippians chapter 3 specifically. <laughs> And we find as we read through this letter that Paul was a fiercely ambitious man. Before he was a Christian, Paul had been fiercely ambitious in his desire to persecute the early church. He was totally focused on 
arresting Christians, of seeking them out, throwing in prison. But after his conversion on the Damascus Road, he actually didn't lose his ambitious nature, but the object of his ambition changed. And if anything, he became even more ambitious. So in Philippians 3 and elsewhere, he describes himself as being like an athlete, striving to win a race. You see, he was focused, he was disciplined, and he did not want to be distracted by anything that would hinder him getting to his goal. It says in verse 10 that Paul's ambitious to know Christ. That was his focus, to know Jesus. And this was more than just head knowledge, knowing about Christ. It was a close, intimate, personal relationship with Jesus, the risen Lord Christ. And Paul, Paul was determined to strive for all he was worth to achieve that goal of knowing Jesus personally, closely. So when it comes down to the question, should a Christian be ambitious? The answer, I believe, is yes. We should be ambitious. But we're told very clearly that the reason or the object of our ambition must be God. Number one. And not ourselves. Our dreams, our goals, our ambitions must stem from the ambition to know God and to glorify him in all that we do and not to glorify ourselves. John Stott, a very well-known, famous uh, Christian theologian, I think he died in about 2010 or 12. He wrote a lot of books, but he had this to say about this subject. Certainly, no man can know himself until he has honestly asked himself about his motives. What is the driving force of his life? What ambition dominates and directs him? Ultimately, says John Stott, there are only two controlling ambitions to which all others may be reduced. One is our own glory. The other is God's. <coughs> what this boils down to is that when it comes to our goals or ambitions, we're confronted with two choices. And it's the choice between ourselves and God. Now Paul, getting me to uh, Apostle Paul, he was single-minded about his ambition. He says in verse 13 of chapter 3, there is one thing that I do. This is the one thing that I do. I want to know Christ and this is the one thing that I am do that I'm totally focused on. Now, it didn't mean that he neglected every other area of his life. Rather, it means that all else was subordinated to his overriding ambition to know Jesus. I'll give you another quote. This time from Ignatius of Loyola. He was actually the founder of the Jesuits, but he wrote these words around 1500. He said, Human persons are created to praise, reverence, and serve God. The other things on the face of the earth are created for us to help us in attaining the purpose for which we are created. Therefore, 
We are to make use of them insofar as they help us to attain our purpose. And we should rid ourselves of them insofar as they hinder us from attaining it. Very wise words. You see, it's not wrong to have ambitions for our marriages, our family life, our careers, our work, our ministry. Indeed, it is entirely appropriate that we should be ambitious. But all such ambitions must be subordinated to our primary ambition, and that is to know Christ. Jesus is our first priority. It must be our first priority in life, and nothing in our life should conflict with that primary ambition. I wonder if you remember this guy. His name was Charles Colson, or Chuck Colson. He was born in 1931. He spent time in the US Marines before he studied law and uh, started up his own law firm. After that, he moved into politics. And by the time he was 40, he'd become one of the President Richard Nixon's closest advisors. Later on, he described himself as a young, ambitious kingmaker of Nixon, of lower middle class origins, men who'd known hard work all our lives, prideful men seeking that most elusive goal of all, acceptance and the respect of those who had spurned us in earlier years. Charles Colson became very well known and the media ended up branding him as Nixon's hatchet man. The man, he was the guy that handled all Richard Nixon's dirty work. However, during this period of time that he was with Nixon, he became a Christian. And that was in part by reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. He wrote his autobiography sometime later and he called it Born Again. But his deeds caught up, to, up with him and he was tried and convicted for his role in the Watergate uh, cover-up. And he was sentenced to three years in prison. When he left court after his sentencing, he said, what happened in court today was the court's will and the Lord's will. I have committed my life to Jesus Christ and I can work for him in prison as well as out. And he did. After his release, he set up the Prison Christian Fellowship, which was directly or indirectly responsible for leading thousands, literally thousands of people to Christ. He was once heard to say, I was ambitious, and I am ambitious today. But I hope it is not for Chuck Colson, though I struggle a lot as a matter of fact. But I am ambitious for Christ. The Apostle Paul as I said, was also a man who was ambitious for Christ. Although no doubt he too struggled with it at times. And he saw himself, as I had before, as like an athlete. An athlete running for Jesus. Not looking back. As it says in verse 13, Forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul worked hard, he strived, but he was disciplined, totally focused on the end goal, that finish line. And he didn't keep looking over his shoulder. 
You've seen what happens when athletes in a race, they get close to that finish line, look over the shoulder, next thing, they lose the race. No, Paul was focused. He was focused on what was, what was ahead. He didn't reflect or hang on to what had gone on previously. He was determined, determined not to be distracted in achieving his goal. He didn't want to be hindered by things that did not matter. He kept his eyes firmly on Jesus. Now the message here is for us is that we cannot rest on our past successes or our achievements. Nor should we get bogged down by past failures or despair over past sins, things that have happened before. Neither should we hang on to bitterness over past wrongs that have been done to us. We're not to dwell on the past. We shouldn't let our past hold us back to hinder us. We shouldn't allow ourselves to be distracted from living life as apprentices of the Master, Jesus. And so we need to be disciplined in our spiritual lives. That means we need to be disciplined in our prayer life, to set a time aside each day, spend time alone with God and keep praying through the day. That doesn't have to stop there. We need to be disciplined to be regularly reading our Bibles. That's how we learn about Jesus. That's how we learn about what God's purposes are for us in this world. That's how we get to know him personally. We've got an enormous treasure in our Bibles. So we need to be reading them and studying them regularly, consistently. And we need to make meeting on Sundays a priority of fellowshipping together, of encouraging each other in our, in our walk, in our lives. This is so important to meet together on Sundays. It should be a priority of our week. This is what it means to be ambitious for Jesus, to know Jesus. Paul urges the Christians at Philippi to follow his example. You see, he didn't want to be alone and setting himself up as the primary example of being someone who follows Jesus. He expected others to mature and grow and to share the same aims and ambitions. He says in verse 15, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things, have the same mindset. Already we see in this passage that others have followed his example and he encouraged them to do the same in verse 17 when he says, join together in following my example. Brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. He expected them to have role models within their own community. Now, Paul, you can see he was ambitious. He was a tough man. He's an interesting mix of a man. As we read through Scripture, we find that Paul was flogged and tortured for his faith. But he did not cry tears of physical pain. What Paul did when he suffered was to sing hymns of praise. 
And Paul's undergirding theme in this book of Philippians is joy. He rejoiced even when he was going through some incredibly tough times. And we see, we see it. He experienced troubles, hardships, distresses. distresses. He experienced beatings, imprisonment. People had rioted over him. And he faced sleepless nights and hunger in all kinds of situations. And yet as we move on to verse 18 here in Philippians 3, we find that he sheds tears. Not of self-pity. And he's had, certainly had lots of reasons to grieve for the situation he found himself in. But he was shed tears of sadness about the many who were living as enemies of Christ, enemies of the cross of Christ. He grieved for those people who did not know Jesus, and in particular those who actively rejected the forgiveness and freedom that Jesus died to bring. And either consciously or unconsciously, they were effectively rejecting Jesus and his achievement on the cross. And Paul sees that they are missing out on the resurrection of the dead and that their terrible end was destruction. Verse 19. This is harsh. It's tragic. Because these enemies of the cross were dooming themselves to spending an eternity in hell. Now hell's not a nice place. It's a horrible place. It's a place of pain and suffering which will go on for eternity. And it grieves me greatly when I hear people saying, oh yeah, I'm not going to heaven, I'm going to hell, but there, all my mates will be there and we'll just share a barbecue and toast some sausages in the flames. What false thinking. What deluded thinking. Hell is a place to be avoided. Paul knew that. And it caused him a great deal of concern and anguish and, anguish and grief. You see, <laughs> perhaps these people were unaware of their eventual destination. Because the devil never tells us our destination as he leads us down his path. But Paul saw where their destiny lay. He saw where their fate lay. And he wept for those who did not know Jesus. So Paul goes on to tell us three things about these people. And these things show us that their ambitions were in an entirely different direction to those of Paul. They were what we might call man-centred ambitions. First, their appetites dictated their lifestyle. He tells us that their God is their stomach. For some people, their lives might literally revolve around eating and drinking. But I don't think we need to interpret this quite so narrowly because I believe Paul is, is referring to those whose God is what we might call personal satisfaction and those whose lives revolve around sensuality. Let me explain. You see, God made us sensual beings. Jesus himself became flesh like we are. The body in itself is not evil. 
We were created by the Lord of the universe. And we were created to enjoy all our bodily senses, whether sight or smell or hearing or touch or taste. There's nothing wrong with enjoying food or alcohol or music or exercise or clothes or having sexual pleasure as long as they are within the limits that God has prescribed. What is wrong, though, is when these things become our God and displace the one true God and Jesus, who should be at the centre of our lives. These things push the Lord out. And sadly, it is as true today as it was in Paul's day that much of our world revolves around sensuality. If you just look at some of the advertisements, or most of the advertisements on TV, even Stuart's little ad this morning about the uh, thing that cleaned the carpets, almost all advertising is devoted to things that, I love this one, it just fitted in very nicely, but almost all advertising is devoted to food, clothing, sex, exercise, drink, perfume and jewellery, or in this case, candles. So much in the advertising world is all about the body. How to clothe it, how to exercise it, how to make it feel good, how to feed it, how to decorate it, how to make it smell good. There is a constant appeal to our sensuality, to our senses, things that will make us feel good. From what we eat and drink to where and how we holiday. And even the banks and insurance companies declare that they will look after you. You know, many people's lives revolved directly or indirectly around satisfying their bodily desires. For some, it is as direct as in the advertisements we see. For others, their ambition may be money or power or fame. But the truth is, such ambitions always lead to dissatisfaction. Recognise this guy? Mick Jagger of Rolling Stones fame. Mick Jagger is now 74 years old, would you believe? He's a father and a grandfather, and I believe he's actually a great-grandfather. He has eight children, and... Those eight children were born to five different women. Mick Jagger is currently worth around $360 million. He's a friend of the rich and famous. And he has fame, money and influence. And yet his friend Keith Richards was quoted a while ago as saying that 99% of the male population of the Western world and beyond would give a limb to live the life of Jagger to be Mick Jagger. But Mick Jagger is not happy being Mick Jagger. It seems that nearly 30 years after the Stones' most defining moment in song, the one certain thing about Mick Jagger today is that he is unsatisfied still. The second thing Paul tells us about the enemies of the cross, is that they boast when they should blush. He writes that their glory is in their shame. They are like thieves who boast about their ill-gotten gains. 
or those who have accumulated great wealth and who take great pride in showing off their acquisitions that they've collected. Or those people who boast of their sexual conquests or how much they've drunk the night before. Things they should be ashamed of, but instead they glorify in those things. They've achieved those ambitions. But these ambitions have become gods in themselves and these gods that we say are false gods. And then thirdly, the enemies of the cross, their minds are locked into this planet. Paul says their mind is set on earthly things. You know, Jesus once said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If our ambitions are sensual, our thoughts will be earthly. If our ambition is to know Christ, our hearts will soar into the heavenly places. We shared uh, Psalm 57 in our reading plan this week, earlier this week. And a great little part of Psalm 57 is this, and it just lifts the spirit to read it. It says, the psalmist writes, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples, for great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory cover the earth. And you just read those words and your spirit just soars, the psalmist. It's uplifting. And that's where God wants us to go. He wants us, our hearts to soar into the heavenly places. Well, back to Philippi. I keep jumping back into this passage. Philippi, as we've, we have learnt, is a Roman colony. And its people were very proud of their Roman heritage. They were, they were very proud that they were Roman citizens. But Paul points to a higher citizenship in this, in this world. Christian believers are strangers and foreigners. We're fully involved in it, but not of it. Because the Christian believer is a citizen of heaven. This is important because citizenship carries with it certain rights and, and privileges, also responsibilities. You see, citizens of Australia enjoy many benefits. I won't go into all that, but there's a great waiting list of people who want to become citizens of this country to enjoy the benefits of actually living as citizens of this country. But as citizens of heaven, we have the privilege of having a close personal relationship with the Lord of the universe, Jesus. We have access to the resurrection power of God who works through us through his Holy Spirit. And what's more, we have a place in heaven reserved for us for eternity in the very presence of God Almighty who calls us his precious children. That's even better than being a citizen. But here in verse 20, of Philippians 3, Paul reminds the Philippians of their true home, where their hearts should be set. Now, the great desire of every Roman colony at that time was to have the emperor come to visit. From AD 48, he was given the title Saviour of Mankind. And when he visited 
a place like Philippi, the emperor would bring gifts for the population and he may bring relief from taxes. And so as the people of Philippi awaited a worldly saviour, so the Christian believers await a heavenly saviour. The Lord Jesus Christ, as we read in verse 21, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Our bodies are lowly. It's a word we don't often use. But it means we're wearing out. <laughs> Getting old is something our society finds difficulty in dealing with. Hence the obsession with cosmetic surgery and looking young. The fact is, as we age, our bodily strength begins to fail and our mental powers fade. Our eyesight fails and we often experience debilitating illnesses. Just an aside, have you ever read Ecclesiastes 12, the last chapter in Ecclesiastes? A brilliant description of getting old or being old. I'll leave that for later. But our bodies are also lowly in that we constantly need to battle against temptation to control our tongues and our appetites. So it's absurd to make a God out of them. The irony is that if we make our bodies our God, our destiny must logically be destruction. But if we seek God's glory then Jesus will transform these bodies which are subject to decay and to sin and he'll transform these bodies to be like his glorious body, his resurrection body. And that body, our bodies, will then never age or decay and we won't be subject to sinful desires. We get new bodies. How good will that be? We just won't float around like ghosts and little vapours. But it will be very different. Although there will be a continuity, we will know each other, we'll recognise each other in heaven. But someone once said that we will be wholly the same and wholly changed. You see, Paul is intent on helping the Philippian believers lay firm foundations in the relationship to Jesus. They need to keep their eyes focused on where they're going to reach that heavenly goal. And in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, he writes, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Paul encourages them to stand firm in the Lord. It reflects one of our church's values that of becoming enduring disciples of Jesus. It's that way, isn't it? <laughs> enduring disciples of Jesus. The word used here is the same as that for a soldier standing firm and fast in the face of an enemy surging down upon him. Or a combatant in the Roman, um, Roman amphitheatre fighting for his life. Standing firm in the face of great danger. 
And we believers are condemned for, to fight for our very lives. Because if we don't, the end is destruction. Because against us are arrayed incredible worldly passions and desires and ambitions. And so we need courage and endurance to win the victory against such incredible odds that are stacked against us. Paul tells us in this passage how the Philippians, how we can not only hold off the enemy, but come through victorious, successful, full of joy and peace, and with a sense of the very presence of God Almighty with us. Paul writes to a group of people whom he regards as dear friends, close friends, brothers and sisters, he calls them, and he loves them and longs to be with them. They are his joy and crown. And now the, the word crown does not imply domination here. Rather, it carries the idea of victory and celebration. And it's a word that's used, the, the word used of the crown or wreath given to a victorious athlete in the Victoria, Victoria Greek Games. Sorry, To win the crown, that laurel wreath, was the peak of an athlete's ambition. It was also the word used of the crown in which an honoured guest was presented with at a banquet or celebration. And such is Paul's feeling about the Christians at Philippi. He led them to the Lord and watched them grow and mature as Christian believers. And now they are bringing him great joy and he wants to ensure that they will not fall away. And so he passes on to them some of the secrets of firming, standing firm in the Lord. So in summary in this passage, Paul tells us that everyone is on one of two paths. There are two destinations. One is heading to heaven, the resurrection of the dead and the transformation of our bodies to be like his glorious body. The other destination is heading for destruction. And then there are two powers at work. The resurrection power of the Holy Spirit and the power of bodily appetites. There are two possible lifestyles. Those willing to share in the, in the sufferings of Jesus and those who want a lifestyle of ease and comfort. There are two possible gods. Our Lord Jesus Christ or our stomachs. There are two possible attitudes. Attitudes towards Jesus, that is. Either friendship at an intimate level or as an enemy of the cross. And ultimately, there are two possible ambitions. Either his glory, Christ-centred ambition, or our own glory, which is self-centred ambition. Paul says, in effect, I have changed my ambitions. Now I am Christ-centred. Will you join me? What will you choose? Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul's insights. We thank you for the tears he wept over those who don't know you as Lord and Saviour. Father, we pray that you give us a heart to see the lost, 
to win them to you. And Lord, but we, we do celebrate the fact that you've called us to be citizens of your kingdom. That you've accepted us and welcomed us into your presence as your very precious children. Our Lord, may we have the ambition that Paul had to know you, to know you better day by day, to love you, to serve you, and to glorify in your presence. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.